Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On July 12th, the world was shown images from the James Webb Space Telescope. For the first time, we saw a galaxy so far away that the light took more than 13 billion years to reach us here on Earth. The universe itself is 13.8 billion years old. This means that what NASA saw and what they showed us looked back to when the first stars and first galaxies formed probably within a half a billion years after the Big Bang. Much bigger than the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope can gather more light and see dimmer objects that are much farther away. The farther anything is, the longer it takes light to reach us. So when we look at the farthest things, we are looking farthest back in time. It is mind-boggling, really, the distance and time that light has been traveling. To be sure, light is a deep metaphor. Since the beginning of human history, the presence and absence of light has oriented the way humans have engaged the world. It has structured our measurements of day and night and seasons. The presence of light impacts our brains. It affects our moods and our states of mind. And of course, we need light to see the world around us. So fundamental and pervasive is light in how we engage the world that the use of light as a metaphor is powerfully, pervasively multidimensional. It makes sense that the ancient Israelites used the metaphor of light for God. Not only was God the creative source of light, but God was light. As the psalmist would write, in thy light do we see light. Elsewhere, the psalmist would write, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Whereas the Torah was seen as the primary mediation of God's light in Judaism, Christians quickly ascribed this role to Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus testifies about himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus extends this metaphor to his disciples. To them, he says, you are the light of the world. That's the scripture lesson we are focused on today. Jesus has just preached the Beatitudes, in which he says, Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak, meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. While all of these Beatitudes name some possibly other group of people in the third person, 
Jesus ends with a final beatitude, speaking directly to his disciples in the second person, saying, Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In the passage we heard today, Jesus is still talking directly to the disciples. You, he says, are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus' words here are spoken in the same spirit as Jesus' words at the end of the gospel in which he charges his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. To the end of the age, seeing images of light that has been traveling 13 billion years before reaching us inspires in me confidence that Jesus, the light of the world, will be with us to the end of the age. It inspires me to wonder if the light Jesus tells us to be and to shine through the good works we do can so powerfully travel across space and time and in some way give glory to God. Could it be that Jesus knows something about how the universe operates to have such faith in us, such faith in the power of our good works to be a witness to others, not only near but also to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age? Certainly, different kinds of good works have different kinds of impacts, and some may seem more enduring than others. But what if we took Jesus' teaching seriously? The metaphor of light, especially given what we know about the distance and duration that light can travel, stretches us to wonder how our actions may have enduring impact for God's kingdom. None of us knows for certain what impact our good intentions put into action will ultimately have on the world. If we are financially fortunate, we have the opportunity to plan our charitable giving and bequests, selecting those individuals or institutions upon whom we want most to leave a good impact. Every church knows and values the long-term importance of such planned giving. But even actions that arise in the moment, in response to an immediate need or surrounding circumstance, can, unbeknownst to us, have such long-lasting impact. When I visited Yad Vashem, the Holocaust memorial in Israel, I learned that there is a name given to non-Jews who took great risks to save Jews during the Holocaust. They are called the righteous among the nations. In contrast to the mainstream attitudes of those who were enthusiastic supporters of Hitler, or who looked the other way when their neighbors were rounded up and killed, or even collaborated with the perpetrators, 
There was a small minority of individuals who mustered extraordinary courage to rescue Jews from death. Even though notices were posted everywhere warning the population against helping the Jews, even though those who helped Jews risked execution not only of them, for themselves but also their family members, these individuals took the risk. Scholars have attempted to identify the righteous among the nations. They have sought to discover what characteristics they might have had in common. They have found that most rescuers were ordinary people. Some acted out of political, ideological, or religious convictions. Others did not consider themselves to be idealists, but merely compassionate. According to their research, the righteous were Christians from all different denominations and churches, Muslims and agnostics, men and women of all ages, highly educated people as well as illiterate peasants, public figures as well as people from society's margins, city dwellers and farmers from the remotest corners of Europe, university professors, teachers, physicians, clergy, nuns, diplomats, simple workers, servants, resistance fighters, policemen, fishermen, a zoo director, a circus owner, and many more. Most of them never planned to become rescuers and were totally unprepared for the instant in which they had to make such a consequential and far-reaching decision. In his book, If This is a Man, Primo Levi, a Jew who survived the Holocaust and became known for his prose and poetry about life as a prisoner at Auschwitz, wrote about the impact that his rescuer, Lorenzo Perón, had on him. He wrote, I believe that it was really due to Lorenzo that I am alive today, and not so much for his material aid as for ha his having constantly reminded me by his presence that there still existed a just world outside our own, something and someone still pure and whole for which it was worth surviving. The material aid offered by his rescuer is, of course, what saved his life, but beyond this, it was the rescuer's presence the fact that such a kindness existed and was extended to him that made Primo Levi want to live. It was his rescuer's kind presence that was the light that Primo Levi needed to see in order to hope that a better world existed out there than what was currently surrounding him. There have been times in human history so overwhelmingly dark that it seems like the darkness would extinguish any possibility of light. I can't think of anything more extinguishing of light than genocide. And so it is remarkable when survivors of genocide find some light to give them hope enough even to want to survive. The other day, I asked beloved church member Barbara Garmirian Hirschfeld 
if any of her relatives had died in or survived the Armenian genocide. Oh yes, she said. And she shared with me some of the stories of those who survived that were passed down to her generation. In reading the story of Barbara's father's first cousin, Dr. Garabed Evazian, I learned that he was the last survivor of the Armenian genocide in their family. Over 70 members of Garo's family had been killed in the genocide, including his father. Garo's father had been hiding in a friend's home. When the police came to that house and asked if there was anyone hiding there, his father came forward, not wanting to risk his friend's life by having him lie. The police took his father away, and witnesses say that he was killed later that very day. Garo's mother and aunt were deported to the Syrian desert in what became known as death marches, in which tens of thousands of Armenian men, women, and children at a time were lined up and forced to walk toward the Syrian desert so that they would be eliminated by starvation or exhaustion. Thanks be to God that his mother survived. Garo's story is peppered with the presence of individuals Ordinary people, a Greek housekeeper, a school principal, several aunts who cared for him in his years growing up. In the story he tells, you can sense his lifelong gratitude to these persons for their courage to care. They must have been for him lights that prevented the darkness of the Armenian genocide from overwhelming him. On November 2004, just a few weeks before Garo turned 93 and just a few months before the 90th anniversary of the Armenian genocide, Garo died. With the passing of those who survived the darkest times in human history, it may seem like stories are all that we have left. Their descendants may worry that the details of these stories will get lost. And it is true, they may. What does not get lost, however, is the light that gets passed down from one generation to the next, from one teacher to a student, from one neighbor to another, Garo shared the light that kept him living with his granddaughter, who shared it with Barbara, who shared it with me, and has allowed me to share it with all of you. Light has a way of illuminating, striking, reflecting, and spreading to others along the way. Light has a way of traveling far distances across time and space. This is the conviction of our faith to which John testifies when he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. So much is at stake in this. For your light has great impact. So how are you going to let your light shine? This summer in worship, we are spending time reflecting on our personal affirmations of faith, why we worship, why we strive to be a witness in the community, and why we invite others to join us. This morning, I invite you to reflect on how you are going to let your light shine. In the pews, you will find a basket with cards that, are, that you are invited to use as you reflect. And for those worshiping online, we encourage you to find a piece of paper and write down your reflections and then send those by email to your pastors. Your reflection, friends, can also be an offering of yourself. And so to that end, if you wish, you may place it in the offering plate later in the service or if you're worshiping online. Just email it to us.